This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. So obviously there's a lot of kind of post-election stuff that we're dealing with. You may wonder, how does this work now? What are we doing moving forward? We're going to break some of that down for you. Essentially, the steps that the liberals now have to take in order to get a functioning or workable government moving forward, we are going to break some of that down for you a little bit later. Also, we are still waiting to hear from conservative leader Andrew Scheer. Uh, He had said earlier, they had the conservatives had let everybody know that he would be speaking at 10 o'clock our time, that still hasn't started. So we are obviously keeping an eye on that. We want to hear what he has to say. What are his plans for his party moving forward? How are they going to approach the situation? You know, obviously there's a lot of questions for Andrew Scheer at this point as well. If you're a conservative, you voted conservative yesterday, I think you have to wonder what the heck happened. How was that party unable to convince enough people to vote for them after that horrible scandal-ridden year that the liberals had? This kind of should have been a walk in the park for the Conservatives. So what went wrong? Uh, So again, we're waiting to hear from Andrew Scheer on that coming up. But for our hot question of the day today. So we expect that in the next days ahead that the Liberals, the fact that they have the most seats, but not a majority, that they will try to form some kind of coalition or some kind of agreement with another party that will allow them to govern. So they'll be in a minority government situation. We're asking you for our hot question of the day. Do you think... A minority government is good for Canada. Do you think yes, keeps politicians honest, or no, things won't get done? You can email me, simi at cknw.com. Call our buzz line with your thoughts on this too, 604-331-2899. And as well, check out that hot question of the day. You'll find it online. It's on Twitter. It's at, at CKNW or at Simisara980. Now, this is not new to us. Like, we've been through this. Stephen Harper had a couple of minority governments. Paul Martin had a minority government. That's all just in the last, like, you know, 10 to 15 years. Uh, You know, go back even more. Joe Clark had a minority government. So it does happen to us, and things do get done. And the nice thing that we'd like to think is that it forces parties to work together. So do you view that as a positive or a negative? Let me know your thoughts on that. We will, of course, be having that discussion today, but do check out our hot question of the day. You'll find it at CKNW or at Sarah 980 online. Yes, I am. Uh, I, uh, yes, I am staying as leader of the party. Uh, we obviously uh, are very happy with the many aspects of the campaign. Uh, we, uh, we obviously wished we uh, had better results, but we point to the fact that we won the popular vote. Really? Happy with many aspects of the campaign. That is Conservative leader Andrew Scheer speaking just moments ago. He's taking some questions right now, so we'll have more for you on that. But a couple of interesting notes this morning about the election results. One, Ontario Premier Doug Ford. We know that he was definitely a big part of this federal election campaign, even though he stayed on the sidelines, pretty much out of sight completely during the campaign, did not campaign with Andrew Scheer at all. Well, Ontario Premier Doug Ford has released a statement this morning saying that he has had a phone call with Liberal leader Justin Trudeau today, this morning, as a matter of fact, and they look forward to working together. Interesting, right? And then over in New Brunswick, the progressive conservative premier of that province, uh, Premier Blaine Higgs, uh, he said that voters have spoken on the federal carbon tax. He will now look at coming up with a made in New Brunswick version of the carbon tax that complies with the liberal climate plan that can replace the one that Ottawa's going to, you know, put onto New Brunswick because they hadn't come up with theirs. So two conservatives there saying that they recognize what has happened and they, you know, plan to work together with the liberals moving forward. As for the other parties who didn't do as well as, <clears throat> excuse me, many people expected them to, 
Let's start with the NDP. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh spoke this morning, and he says he's not worried about questions of his leadership, even though there was this so-called NDP surge in the last days of the election campaign, but it actually resulted in the party losing 15 seats yesterday. But one of the difficult things about elections is during an election, you can lose really good people. And one of the wonderful things about elections is that you can gain some new members of your party that, that win seats. And we had a little bit of both in this campaign. But most importantly, the results of this election, they showed that Canadians now have a historic opportunity to, to win. And the way they win is this minority government gives us a chance to be able to fight for the things that we've laid out all along this campaign. It gives us a chance to, to let Canadians know that we, we understand the responsibility that's been given to us that we are going to continue to make sure that government does not work for the powerful corporations at the very top, but works for people. I take this responsibility very seriously, and I'm going to work hard to deliver on this responsibility. That is NDP leader Jagmeet Singh speaking this morning. He said he has not spoken to Liberal leader Justin Trudeau about how this is all going to work moving forward, but says that he is open to anything. I'm hoping that uh, Mr. Trudeau respects the fact that there is a minority government now, which means we've got to work together. And so my focus is going to be on delivering for Canadians and the things that they need. And I'm ready to work with Mr. Trudeau to deliver those things. All right. So obviously, we're also wanting to hear more about what Conservative leader Andrew Scheer had to say. He is actually speaking right now. Lots of questions coming to him. But in the meantime, let's get started talking to Richard Zussman, our Global News online legislative reporter, who's also been breaking down these results today. Hi, Richard. Hi, Simi. So what'd you think? Overall, I think when you look at the big picture, Justin Trudeau continues to be the prime minister. He will need help, likely from Jagmeet Singh and the NDP. Excuse me. And... For the Conservatives, Andrew Scheer, uh, in that press conference he's holding right now in Regina, talks about how he is going to have the strongest minority government, or sorry, the strongest opposition in Canadian history. They won the popular vote. They won a substantial number of seats. We'll see ultimately what that means in terms of policy, because, you know, a lot of this progressive agenda that Justin Trudeau started around transit, housing, climate change, that will continue forward. And as you mentioned, the premier's weighing in now about you know working with the prime minister. Premiers have to say that they need the money from Ottawa right. in order to get things but, built and to do things. But it is a different message around what we may see on carbon pricing, which was the biggest opposition yeah. the prime minister had from provinces other, obviously, than British Columbia. Well, the Ontario situation, the New Brunswick one, I find really interesting because in Ontario, they worked hard to oppose that federal carbon tax. Like that was a huge issue for them. And then this morning, you've got Doug Ford saying, no, we're going we're gonna to work together. We appreciate his efforts on infrastructure structure. And I thought, boy, that's going to make for some really interesting times moving forward. Yeah. And and ultimately, the voters in Ontario spoke. The Liberals, uh, I think there was an expectation that they could hemorrhage some of their uh, MPs and they didn't. I think they only dropped one seat in all of Ontario and the Liberals held pretty strong there and hold uh, a big majority of the votes, uh, 70 something out of 120 or so. So a substantial number of Ontario MPs are Liberals. And like I said, you need the money to build transit, to build bridges, to build highways. And so the premier of a province, the largest province in the country, Ontario, needs the support of the the prime minister needs right. to be on the same page at least to get some of that money. Yeah, let's talk some leadership issues here yeah. as well, because we know that Andrew Scheer, the conservative leader, uh, he went to great pains to not campaign with Doug Ford, the conservative premier of Ontario. In fact, you hardly heard boo from Doug Ford over the last you know, five weeks the campaign was on. Uh, if you're a conservative, Richard, if you had voted conservative in this election, wouldn't you be wondering how the heck did they not win? I wonder, and if you look at British Columbia, I was breaking down the ridings. They picked up, the Conservatives did, Cloverdale-Langley City from the Liberals, Kelowna Lake Country from the Liberals, Kootenai, uh, Columbia from the NDP, Mitchin Matsqui from the Liberals, Pitt Meadows Maple Ridge from the Liberals, Port Moody Coquitlam from the NDP, South Surrey White Rock for the Liberals, Steveston Richmond East from the Liberals. So you look at that and it seems like it's a pretty good night. Yeah. And then you're sitting here in British Columbia thinking, well, you know, why couldn't you deliver elsewhere? The Conservatives did very, very poorly in Quebec. They were never able to gain any momentum in the province. And in Ontario, the Doug Ford issue was there. Mm-hmm. You know, 
in Ontario, unlike BC, the provincial ridings are the same as the federal ridings, and I'm sure our colleagues in Ontario will do this breakdown, but there must be dozens and dozens and dozens of provincial conservative ridings that went federal uh, liberal. Yeah. And that is where the election is decided. If Andrew Scheer was able to win those seats in Ontario, he would be the prime minister today. It has nothing to do with voters in B.C. Conservatives here delivered and, and swung all of those seats that I mentioned, but it was in other parts of the country where Scheer was not able to get any of that momentum. Against what you would what you think, what we all assume is a pretty wounded opponent, right? We had a scandal-ridden year for the Liberals. And, you know, the prime minister uh, delivered on some of those uh, projects and ideas that I think Canadians agree with. And often, and I know my colleague Keith Baldry talks about this a lot as well, scandals don't make a huge impact in the bottom line of things. They dominate a lot of the discussion, but ultimately when people vote, they think about sort of the issues that matter to them, and that may be transportation, childcare, healthcare. Uh, so all of those, I think, is what ultimately led people to think, well, Justin Trudeau's agenda is what I agree with, and it's going okay, but and they they still lost a lot of ridings. You heard those ridings I yeah. listed off. You know, they weren't able to bring back Vancouver Granville to Jody Wilson-Raybould, one as an independent. So it wasn't a great night for Trudeau in BC. 2015 was record-breaking for him here in the province. He was able to convince so many people in Metro Vancouver that his vision was best suited uh, for the region. Uh, wasn't able to sell that this time around, losing a whole bunch of seats that were traditional, most of them conservative seats. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they've now gone back to the conservatives. It makes the BC landscape really interesting now. Were, were you surprised by anything? Like when we were watching last night, what was the thing where you went, oh, didn't see that coming? There was nothing. It's funny, Simi. Um, nothing really. I, I think Jagmeet Singh stalling out in the mid-20s was surprising to me. Yeah. I think, you know, there was an expectation he was going to do better in the cities. And he ended up losing two in BC. He didn't pick any up. He held on to all the seats on Vancouver Island, was not able to gain any momentum uh, in the city of Toronto, where he campaigned really heavily. And I think there's five or six Toronto seats that have been NDP uh, in the past few elections, federally or provincially, that I think Jagmeet Singh was hoping he could grab onto. Yeah. Uh, and he was, wasn't able to do any of that. And I think he was asked about his leadership. Jagmeet Singh has proven how important campaigns are, but ultimately you know, how hard it is with so many progressive options for people on the ballot. We will see what sort of influence he holds over the prime minister now that the prime minister needs NDP votes in order to keep the confidence of the House of Commons. But I think I, I think it's the NDPers woke up with way more influence than they ever could have hoped for. And that's exciting for NDP supporters and for Jagmeet Singh. But they lost almost half their seats and they need to figure out a way where where does the electoral map work for them or is the best case scenario going forward that we can be a partner uh, in a minority right. government. And, and I think that that's a real dilemma for a major party like the NDP. That's true, though. I mean, you're right. They have way more influence in this situation than if they had won more seats and the Conservatives had won the election. Exactly. And if somebody had won a majority and the NDP, like Jack Layden, sitting as the leader of the official opposition with over 100 seats, had far less influence than uh, Jagmeet Singh now has. But the question will be through these negotiations. This is a very, very, very different situation than in British Columbia. When we had a negotiation that was about who is going to hold the balance of power, that was a very different conversation. Even then, it's hard for the Greens here in BC to show exactly what they have done to influence NDP decision-making. I think Jagmeet Singh will be happy to get a few of those. I think the focus will be on students. I think that uh, getting rid of uh, student debt, uh, student loan debt, is probably going to be something they can agree with with the Liberals. I think housing, obviously, reconciliation, and then the bigger ones are obviously climate and the Transmountain Pipeline plus electoral reform, which I think are big stretches in this scenario, but we'll have to see what happens behind closed doors. So much more still to come. All right, Richard, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Amy. That's Global News Online legislative reporter Richard Zussman kind of summing up where we are this morning. Well, today, of course, we are breaking down the election results, what that means for you. And here's the thing. 
Even as you were voting yesterday, there was polling going on. Almost 10,000 people were polled by Ipsos on election day, all trying to figure out how people were feeling about their choices on that day. We're going to talk more about this now with the help of Sean Simpson, the vice president of Ipsos. Good morning, Sean. Good morning. Okay, so what? how did you do this? You were talking to people as they were going to the polls. Uh, well, actually, after they vote. So, oh. um, yeah, what we do is we have our online panel of Canadians who agree to do research with us from time to time. And we said we said to them, look, go vote on E-Day. And when you come home, we've got some questions for you. And so uh, throughout the course of the day, as you said, about 10,000 interviews. And uh, we begin to understand what's motivating people to vote one way or the other and what they think should happen based on the results. Now, 10,000, that's a lot when you look at polling. So let's talk about the results. What were some of the most interesting results you found? Well, I think uh, some of the most interesting results uh, that we found include um, how satisfied Canadians are with the outcome of a minority government. And uh, our polling shows that nearly half of people said that, you know what, I'm okay with a liberal government uh, that's supported by the NDP. Now, if you look a little bit deeper, only 10% are very satisfied with it. <laughs> so it's it's almost like, you know, I was talking with my colleague, Daryl Brickard, he said, it's kind of like kissing your sister. You know, it's something that, you know, you do. <laughs> because it's okay it you know you may not it may not be your first choice but you're okay because you understand what the alternatives are all right well that's a horrible analogy but okay (laughs) i get what you are saying there also let's talk about some of the leaders because a lot of the pressure was on the leaders here about whether people were voting for the leadership of the party or the party itself so what did you find there yeah, well, we found that uh, roughly half of Canadians said that they were voting primarily because of policy, uh, the, the, the leaders and the, issue, the party stance on the particular issues. On the other end of the spectrum, we had about 15% of the population who said, I'm vote, voting for my local candidate. Of course, you know, in Vancouver Granville, that would be the primary factor, which would, right. uh, which would you know, uh, inform that result. But for most ridings across Canada, the local candidate doesn't really matter. People are taking their cues from the leaders and from their their stance on the issues. Right. So there's a lot of focus on that today, given the results of the election in particular. We'll start with Andrew Scheer, the Conservative Party, Uh, not the results that a lot of people thought they should be getting after the year that the Liberals had. Yeah, and uh, four in ten Tory voters are not impressed. Uh, four in ten Tory voters say, "You know what? I think we might be look. We should look for a new leader." Six in ten want to give him another shot. So, but the the vast majority of Canadians overall say, "Time for the Tories to uh, to look for their next leader." Okay, so you're saying even out of the people who voted Conservative, yeah. four out of ten of them said Andrew Scheer should go. The knives are out. Yeah. That's a lot. Uh, so mm-hmm. overall, you said 63% of voters uh, believe that if Sheer couldn't get a, mi- a majority government, that he should quit. Yep, that's right. And, you know, it, it's really interesting because we can juxtapose that finding against what people said about Jagmeet Singh. Because the NDP had a uh, actually a horrendous showing. They, you know, they lost seats um, and, uh, and popular vote of only 16%. They're not happy with that. Despite that, a majority of Canadians and a majority of NDP supporters say Jagmeet Singh should stick around. Is that maybe about expectations, do you think, right? The expectations for the NDP were quite low going in there and quite high for the Conservatives. Well, I think that a lot of people um, didn't, you know, when they're assessing whether or not to vote for the NDP, it's not about whether they like Jagmeet Singh or not. It's about, you know, if their greater priorities to stop Stephen, or Stephen Harper, my goodness, Andrew Scheer, <laughs> then they have to park their vote with the Liberals. And so it's not an anti-Jagmeet Singh uh, vote that or sentiment that keeps people away from him. It may be more anti-NDP, but not Jagmeet And so people think you should get another kick at the can. Interesting. Okay, now let's talk about the Trudeau Liberals here, because you're talking about somebody who had this, you know, majority government, and now they're looking at a minority situation, and he had a very uh, scandal-ridden year. How, what, what did people say when they reflected on the leadership of Justin Trudeau? Well, they're not they're not thrilled with him still. Uh, even though he won a second mandate, it's not a majority. They wanted to punish him. And when we look at some of the uh, leadership attributes that we tested in our E-Day poll, such as who can provide the most open, responsible, and ethical government, who will follow up on their election promises, and ultimately, who do you trust the most? Trudeau polls below 
uh, Andrew Shear and Jagmeet Singh on most of those metrics. So he's got a lot of work to do to earn back the trust of Canadians. Okay, so then what happened? <laughs> Given those results, I'm so curious. Yeah. Like, what happened? What happened <laughs> is that uh, there is uh, uh, there is people were voting based on I think their least uh, sort of offensive option to them uh, in Ontario. Well, sorry, in Quebec. Let's start there. Uh, even though many people wanted to see the Liberals reelected, it was Quebec first. And so, e- even though a quarter of Bloc supporters thought that Trudeau did an okay job, they're still voting Bloc, Quebec first. And in Ontario, I think many people uh, the, 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 were reacting a little bit to the messages from the, the, the Liberal camp saying, you know, Doug Ford, you know, Andrew Scheer, he, he, because he wasn't able to establish himself and what he was all about, people thought, well, then maybe maybe he'll be just like Doug Ford and, and cut in all these places and, and as a result we're reacting to that so because that's where the seats are that's how we determine the outcome of the election so how did the results uh, of the election match with what Ipsos had been polling leading up to the election well, I'm very glad that you asked that question <laughs> because it, it matched up very well. You know, our dance card is usually full the morning after we blow an election uh, and usually <laughs> nobody wants to talk to us when we get it right. So I'm, I'm very pleased to say that uh, we were within two points for each of the um, each of the parties uh, in this election. And uh, we predicted a popular vote lead uh, for the conservatives of two points nationally. And it was one point four. So, you know, we're, we're really happy and, and, and proud of our result. Um, and uh, and uh, you know I, I think the the big the bigger surprise is how the popular vote translated into seats because right. I don't think anybody saw the liberal vote being as efficient as it ended up being. Well, that was the thing. It was very efficient when you compare it to the conservative vote as well. Uh, one thing I did notice though is that polling had the Greens doing much better than they actually did, even as a percentage of the popular vote. Not my polling. We, if you look at a, at the yeah, a little defensive it, it, there, Sean. It, it, yeah. Well, no, well, no. We we the whole time we've been we've been below the the market average on the Green Party, and that's methodological. Um, we found historically that if you prompt the Green Party in your questionnaire, then you know ten or eleven percent of people will say, "Yeah, I'm going to vote for the Green Party." But if you don't, it's down closer to five or six. Our prediction was six percent of the popular vote, and the Green Party received six percent of the popular vote. Hmm. Okay. So then what does that tell us then about the polling? Like, what do you think you Ipsos was doing that was so accurate? Well, uh, we did a, a, a split sample methodology on the Green Party. So half of respondents answering our poll were prompted a Green Party uh, vote. The other half were not. And they had to say, well, some other party. And we follow up and ask them, well, what party is that? And they can see the Green Party. And the difference is a couple of points between the two. And so when you merge them together, uh, you know, we, we, we believe that you get uh, closest to the truth and our, our results bear that out we we were quite accurate on the green party vote oh so interesting sean thank you for breaking it all down with us this morning it's been my pleasure and cknw has been i think our biggest advocate of all the radio stations across canada we're so happy to speak with you all right thank you that is sean simpson vice president of ipsos well today is a lot of course of talking about what happened yesterday with the election and the results we find ourselves in this quite interesting situation right where no party got a majority we have to see who's going to team up with who if that's what they're going to do to try to form the next government but we thought it uh, a good idea to perhaps put all of this into perspective about our system, how things work. Has this ever happened before? And so to get some history and perspective on this, we're joined now by Professor Richard Johnson, who's a UBC political scientist. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi there. Have we ever seen anything like this before? Yes, it's actually not an uncommon occurrence at all. Uh, Among the so-called Westminster systems, we have the highest frequency of minority governments, We've had them sort of every third election or so since the late 1950s. Uh, So it's not uncommon, and we kind of know how it works. Okay, good. So now you can tell us then, Professor, moving forward the next couple of days, what can we expect to see happen? Not a lot. There's no question who is the Prime Minister of Canada. Uh, He doesn't have to ask anybody's permission to do anything, at least at this point. And so essentially, at some point, Parliament will be recalled, there will be a speech from the throne and a confidence vote, and we'll see what happens. But 
considering there's a pretty natural affinity on most questions of policy between the NDP and the Liberals, that will probably be the standard kind of way in which, uh, on the floor of the House, um, coalitions. I don't really want to use that word, but a coalition on the floor of the House will proceed. But the, the Prime Minister doesn't have to ask anybody to join him. He doesn't have to get any sort of special agreement with any other party, so long as he has a reasonable prospect, vote to vote, of being supported by a majority of the people on the floor. And his best friend is the fact that elections cost money and nobody except maybe the Conservatives has any right now. Right, but if you would it not behoove him, though, behind the scenes to get a sense of how, say, the NDP feel about certain things and how the bloc feels about certain things, like what it is that they would vote against? Yes, and, you know, Jasmeet Singh has made it clear he, he doesn't want TMX to proceed, but he, he has no power over it, and there's really nothing legislative that the government has to do to make that happen. So, but I think it would be a matter of, of a sensible investment of time for Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Singh to talk about the boundaries of their cooperation. But the fact is, their platforms, are, or at least the platforms of the last few years, have been very similar. And what we might see is essentially more of the same from the Liberals, possibly even a little bit more in terms of taxing and spending. The Bloc um, is the largest single third party in the situation, uh, but uh, Mr. Blanchet has made it clear that he's not really in the business of any kind of formal support or opposition. He will be there to defend the interests of Quebec as he defines them. Uh, but in many ways, there aren't many natural affinities between Trudeau and Blanchet. Right. But what we have here in B.C. is they call this like a confidence and supply agreement. That yes. They know what they're going to agree on. They know what they're not going to agree on. Is that something that might work at the federal level? Don't need it. The, the peculiarity of the B.C. situation, and, uh, and I'm aware of only one other situation in recent Canadian history, and that was in Ontario in 1985. Remember that John Horgan has fewer seats than, than the Liberals. Hello? Yes. Oh, so sorry. sorry. I think I got no, a call listening. on the other line. No. I'll just carry on. Okay. Anyway, John Horgan had fewer seats than the Liberals. Christy Clark was still the Premier of the province after the election, and she chose to meet Parliament, and as we know, she lost the confidence vote. The, the confidence and supply agreement was intended to signal to the Lieutenant Governor that there was a viable alternative government to Christy Clark's government. That's what that was about. In this situation... There already is a government. Right. Uh, Mr. Trudeau got more seats than any other single party. He's actually remarkably close to a majority, even though his vote share was pathetic. And so in terms of the parliamentary situation, it's a much easier story. He doesn't need that agreement, and he, would, he, he doesn't want to concede it. He knows that the NDP are going to have to be on his side for most important questions. Right, but he has to know that ahead of time, right? Like there's certain, well, certain bills that he can't afford to lose a vote. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think that a, a conversation with Jasmeet Singh would be prudent. But given the similarity between the parties, it really won't be hard for Mr. Trudeau to produce a throne speech broadly uh, supportable by the NDP. And meanwhile, he doesn't have to make compromises with with Singh on, for example, the pipeline. He, he knows that, that the NDP will have to support him. They can't afford an election. So it sounds like he, like Justin Trudeau and the Liberals, are still very much in the driver's seat here. They absolutely are. In general, the government has a lot of high cards, and that's especially the case when there are supporters. When we think about the, the most productive governments and parliaments in Canadian history, we often think of the Pearson minority governments from 1963 to, to 1968. Much of the Canadian welfare state was put in place in those five years. The Liberals never had a majority in any of that period, but they actually worked very cooperatively with the NDP on legislation. I would say that we're in a broadly similar situation now. So would you say these results, though, even though they lost seats, for the NDP, it's still a win because they're going to have a lot of influence. They'll have more influence in this parliament than in the last one. So in that sense, it's a win. In another sense, of course, it's a major setback. You know, they, they, they've lost 
virtually the entirety of their presence in Quebec. Uh, they the, the 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 comeback that Jasmeet Singh managed to engineer during the campaign. He ran a pretty terrific campaign. Uh, didn't net him as many seats as he'd hoped, uh, including in BC. They you know modestly strengthened their hand. But um, the NDP has to ask itself some pretty tough existential questions over the next four years. And that's another reason why they're not going to want to go to the polls very soon. Right. So then what can the Conservatives offer here and, and what is their role? It sounds like nothing changes for them. That's essentially correct. I mean, they're, they're stronger on the floor of the House. They have 20 more seats, basically. But essentially what they did was make gains in the place that is already their base. Right. You know, the interior of BC, the resource-producing parts of the province, and then um, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and much of Manitoba. So in some sense, they deepened their support where, they, where the support was already strong. What they didn't do was extend the reach of their coalition. I mean, it's stunning to me that the Liberals lost only one seat in Ontario and the Conservatives gained only three. So that was a standoff, and that's a, that's a real problem for the Conservatives, it, it, compounded by the fact that um, they, they lost some of their key moderates. So um, um, the voices inside the Conservative caucus are going to be more sharply conservative than before. Mr. Shear's own leadership may come into question. And, and that being the case, even though what the party needs to do is reach out, he may find it necessary to defend his own position right. to actually sharpen his appeal to his base. Not a good strategy for the long run. So I think it's going to be a nasty parliament. Uh, but in terms of legislative production, um, uh, one in which the, the government and the NDP can cooperate on a lot of things. But if you don't like either of those parties, it's a disastrous result. <laughs> Was this not a lesson? Like you were talking about the lesson that Andrew Scheer there has to learn. He has, he has to ask why he couldn't broaden his support as opposed to increasing it where he already had support. Was that not a lesson that Stephen Harper also learned and learned well? Harper was very disciplined. Yes. I mean, there's no question that he was a seriously conservative person uh, and that, in fact, his government moved the public policy regime in Canada in a very conservative direction. And, and, he, and that happened even though for five of the years he didn't have a majority. But he was intensely strategic and intensely disciplined. And uh, he kept the lid on what used to be called bozo eruptions. <laughs> Yes, and and I think that that Sheer, uh, to a certain extent, Sheer was in some ways a victim of his own uh, backers in the social media universe. The picture that came across of the party was in some ways darker than the party really is, and Sheer himself never really figured out how to counter liberal insinuations that he had had a hidden agenda, um, as I think Andrew Coyne pointed out. Why didn't Sheer just point out that his own view of the world on questions of abortion, for example, are pretty much identical to those of Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, both in terms of his own yeah. opinions and in terms of his relation to his party. But he, he somehow just couldn't find the handle on that question. And you think, boy, that's something that they should have figured out before the election came along. You, you would think. You would think. Uh, Professor Johnson, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. That was so interesting. That's this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Professor Richard Johnson, a UBC political scientist, helping us put the, uh, the, the election result last night in a historical perspective and what is likely to happen moving forward. So much to break down for you today about the election results yesterday and what that means for all of us moving forward. So let's kind of bring you up to speed with how things are looking over the lunch hour here. So we woke up this morning and no one party has a majority of the seats for what will be the upcoming term in the House of Commons. So today we have been hearing from leaders of some of the major parties and we're trying to figure out exactly how this is going to work moving forward. 
Let's start with Jagmeet Singh. So he was the first one out of the blocks this morning at a press conference that he had in Burnaby. This was near Metropolis at Metrotown. Now, he said at that time, and that was about nine o'clock this morning, that he had not spoken yet to Justin Trudeau about how this minority parliament will work. But he did say that he's open to anything. I'm hoping that uh, Mr. Trudeau respects the fact that there is a minority government now, which means we've got to work together. And so my focus is going to be on delivering for Canadians and the things that they need. And I'm ready to work with Mr. Trudeau to deliver those things. And Jagmeet Singh says he's not actually worried about the questions of his leadership because the even though the so-called NDP surge resulted in the party losing 20 seats in yesterday's election. But one of the difficult things about elections is during an election, you can lose really good people. And one of the wonderful things about elections is that you can gain some new members of your party that, that win seats. And we had a little bit of both in this campaign. But most importantly, the results of this election, they showed that Canadians now have a historic opportunity to, to win. And the way they win is this minority government gives us a chance to be able to fight for the things that we've laid out all along this campaign. It gives us a chance to, to let Canadians know that we, we understand the responsibility that's been given to us, that we are going to continue to make sure that government does not work for the powerful corporations at the very top, but works for people. I take this responsibility very seriously, and I'm going to work hard to deliver on this responsibility. That is NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. That was He was speaking this morning out in Metrotown, but he had not yet at that time spoken uh, to uh, Liberal leader Justin Trudeau about how this is going to work moving forward. Justin Trudeau has said that he's not going to be speaking today, that he will be speaking tomorrow at 10 o'clock our time. So, of course, we'll have that for you on the show. Meanwhile, what about Andrew Scheer? Many expected the Conservatives to do much better given the year of scandal uh, that the Liberals and Justin Trudeau in particular had. Now, he spoke a short time ago, and he was keen to point out the high points of his party's campaign. No party earned more votes than the Conservative Party last night. And at 6.2 million votes and still counting, we earned the third most votes ever cast for a political party in an election campaign, including the Conservative majority of 2011. We have increased our vote share and seat count in almost every region of the country, and we have elected several strong new MPs ready to go to Ottawa to fight and fight hard for all Canadians. But where did those votes come from, right? That is the question. As we've learned this morning in analyzing and breaking down the numbers, we know that the Conservative Party gained more votes in areas where they already had lots of support. So rather than winning, say, with 60% of the vote in some regions, they were winning now with 80% of the vote. You're already going to win those seats. You just got even more votes to now win those seats. That is the complication for the Conservatives. How are they going to fix that situation? In closing, Andrew Scheer also laid out his party's plan for the future. We'll head back to Ottawa with a renewed optimism in the future of our party and our country. We'll keep holding Justin Trudeau to account, and we will keep fighting for our values and principles, for our freedoms and our prosperity. And we will be ready when the time comes and his government falls to take the fight back to Justin Trudeau and give Canadians the government they deserve. Sounds like they've got their fingers crossed, hoping that there'll be another election fairly soon. So what about his leadership, right? Lots of questions about that this morning. We were talking earlier about an Ipsos poll. They did some exit polling yesterday. They spoke to 10,000 people who had voted. And of all of the people who voted, 63% of people who responded to that poll said they believe that Andrew Scheer should resign because he couldn't win the majority. Even among voters who did vote Conservative, four out of 10 of those said the same thing. As for Andrew Scheer, he says he will be staying put. Yes, I am. Uh, I, uh, yes, I am staying as leader of the party. Uh, we obviously uh, are very happy with the many aspects of the campaign. Uh, we, uh, we obviously wished we uh, had better results, but we point to the fact that we won the popular vote. Got a little flustered there, I think, with that question. Well, they should have been expecting it. They should have known that's exactly what was going to happen uh, the next day if you did not win and beat the Liberals. So as I mentioned, we are expecting to hear more from Justin Trudeau tomorrow. And also later this hour, Green Party leader Elizabeth May will be our guest here on the show. That's coming up in about 20 minutes time, just after the 1230 news. 
Now, of course, today we've also wanted to hear from you, our buzz line, 604-331-2899. This caller is wondering how the Liberals will get any work done on projects like Trans Mountain if they are looking for, to the NDP for support. The Trudeau and uh, the Shear could work together. They might get some good done and get something done for the West here, and then they can tell the NDP and the Greens to stick it where the sun don't shine. Tell them both to, you know, go where. Thank you. Well, so aggressive at the end there. I did not see that coming with that phone call at all. Uh, but here's the thing, sir. They don't need support from the other parties to do anything about Trans Mountain. Uh, that There's nothing about Trans Mountain that is legislatively necessary. It's a cabinet decision. It has already gone through the regulatory approvals. Well, heck, the government owns it now anyway. So there's actually nothing about Trans Mountain that's going to come to a vote that would allow the NDP to block it or cause the fall of the government or anything like that. So Trans Mountain is actually fine. Uh, it's going to move forward. Although, let's face it, I think we would all love to see party leaders get along better, have a little respect for each other. I do agree on that sentiment for sure. Then we had a caller like Teresa who says that if Justin Trudeau wants to bring the country together, he needs to be more humble. If Justin Trudeau wants to include everybody, then he has to stop gloating. He has to stop talking as if the whole society of Canada voted him in. And just be a bit more gentle. That's what I think. Okay, that's one side of things. And then you had another caller who thinks that maybe the Conservatives are a bit too old-fashioned. The big problem with the Conservative Party, too, is um, they're too caught up in old-time thinking. Um, the newer age, modern-thinking Conservatives are going to have to push and uh, fight to shake up the Conservative uh, Party that is definitely going to be a challenge for Andrew Shear. One, they don't have any high-profile women left in in his you know caucus. Essentially, Lisa Raitt was defeated last night by Adam Vancouverden. So that's going to be a big issue for them moving forward: is recruiting more female candidates, high-profile female candidates. How do you do that and keep things moving forward? Also, then we have Mary. And Mary is a very positive person because she phones us every once in a while. And she wanted to make sure she phoned today to bring the positive vibes to the airwaves. What a beautiful day. I cannot wait to get outside and go for a walk in the park and blow all the cobwebs away. Yes, I was disappointed in the results. However, that is democracy. However, I'm sort of feeling a bit ambivalent about the future. Yes, sometimes it is good to have a minority government, but because people have to compromise, supposedly, and I think a lot of Mr. Singh's policies are way over the top and far too expensive for the taxpayers. And then we have Mr. Shear, and how is he going to work with Mr. Trudeau, especially with regard to TMX? Interesting times ahead for me, and when you finish work, go out and enjoy that sunshine. Take care, Simi. Bye-bye. Thank you, Mary. Thank you so much. We appreciate your good thoughts and feelings. That just put a smile on all of our faces because we thought, yes, somebody with some positive vibes this morning. I have to tell you, I think people would be feeling a lot different if we had all woken up this morning and it was pouring rain like it was yesterday. <laughs> like that, it'd be like a different show at that point because people would be feeling very gloomy. But at the very least, as Mary points out, the sun is shining. The good news is... Andrew Shear owes me 50 bucks. Um, we, we, we made a small wager at the end of the English language debate uh, in which I uh, suggested that he wasn't going to be prime minister. That turned out to be prescient. Um, uh, that sounds like the part of the debate that I actually would have wanted to see televised, but it was not. This was not the election either that the Green Party was looking for. I mean, there was a lot of climate change. There was discussion about that. It sounded prior to the election like there might be a breakthrough for the Green Party coming, but alas, it did not. They did gain one seat. I mean, they got reelected in two of their BC seats and they added one out in New Brunswick. So we wanted to talk today with Elizabeth May, the federal Green Party leader, to find out how the party is doing. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Samay. It's good to talk with you. Are you how are you going to collect this $50? <laughs> well, first time I see him in Parliament, but it wouldn't be very kind. I, you know, and I am essentially a very kind person. We, But we, we, I knew at the time of the English language leaders' debates that although there was a lot of fear factor voting, and of course that does tend to happen towards the end of a campaign, because of the first-past-the-post voting system, that um, you know, the NDP can say to people, don't vote green because you need, you'll elect a conservative if you vote green, and then the liberals say, don't vote NDP 
or green because you'll elect a conservative if you do so. There's a lot of that that goes on, and I thought I might be able to blunt uh, some of that by saying what I thought was pretty obvious at that point in the election uh, in the English language leaders debate in early October that the numbers weren't budging. We were looking at, uh, by the seat count, either a liberal minority or a liberal majority. So I'm I'm relieved it's a minority, but the numbers didn't break in our favor either. We certainly improved overall because, I mean, we, we did go in with two, but bear in mind we Paul Manley had only won his seat May 6th, and the NDP threw everything they had at trying to defeat our candidates on Vancouver Island. So I'm really pleased that we that we held on to my riding and to Nanaimo Ladysmith and had a quite significant breakthrough in Atlantic Canada. So we've tripled our, our uh, seat count compared to the last federal election, we got well over a million votes, uh, and with just a bit more votes than us because of the weirdness of first past the post, the Bloc Québécois gets 32 seats, we get three. It all has to do with our, our very strange voting system. Are you disappointed, though, because many had tagged this kind of as an election where the Greens could potentially have that breakthrough that you've been waiting for? Well, this is not w- without its historic uh, win side, I and mean, this is the best result we've ever had federally, and it's the best result any Green Party around the world has had in a first-past-the-post voting system. So uh, it's nothing to sneeze at to win three seats in a general election for the Green Party and to get more than a million votes. But there's no question that I think if it, ha- you know, I don't, I don't want to concentrate too much on um, how dishonest the campaign against us was on Vancouver Island, but it certainly cost us seats. It cost us votes. And my conclusion is, really, we need to go back to Parliament and get the Elections Act amended so that we have truth in advertising requirements. Uh, we did change the Elections Act in the last Parliament so that uh, that foreign powers can't run ads that are fake news. We, we should have made sure that that included uh, Canadian political parties also can't, because if the ads against us from the NDP had been run by a foreign power, we could have gotten them taken off the air. Right, but Ms. May, you're blaming a lot of this on, it sounds like, the NDP, but does that not also, don't you also have to take into account the fact that you had a lot of candidates who ran into problems? Your party had quite a few bozo eruptions during this no, election campaign. No, we didn't. No, we didn't actually. Send it up an exaggeration. What we had on Vancouver Island was ridings where we were in the lead, until uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars were spent. I mean, I know you're at Lower Mainland, but the the number of attack flyers that came into people's mailboxes and nonstop radio ads did make a difference and lost us several seats. There's no question about what that. What about what happened in Quebec? You had people there who were posting, you know, racist, Islamophobic no, posts, no, and you we, had other candidates asking you to drop those, we those went, candidates. We, we went back over that. The team went back over it with the few candidates who were involved who posted immediate apologies. Had there, there were, there were, an, you know, at every every single party in this election campaign had candidates posting things. Some of them we did remove one candidate we found who had not been not leveled with us. That she was not, and she was actually a paper candidate. I don't know if that distinction makes a lot of sense to our listeners, but a candidate who was a name on the ballot only, not running a real campaign. But we had vetted all the candidates and somehow missed that she was prepared and quite strongly against a woman's right to a safe legal abortion. So we removed her. Uh, we removed another candidate where there was an Islamophobic post that we had missed initially. So every now and you know, but if we found candidates who posted something in social media, but had not intended to, had not recognized that it was it was unacceptable material. If they were prepared to pull that material, apologize, and and commit to understanding that those kinds of posts aren't acceptable, there were other parties had the same kinds of issues with lots of candidates. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't typify anything that occurred in our campaign uh, as you just did. Then- we were we had we had a very strong slate of candidates. Wonderful candidates throughout Canada who, who we had better results than we've ever had. We had over, over 50 ridings that broke 10% popular support and quite a few second-place finishes that were close and really strong. Then so, what went wrong, though? Then what went wrong for your party if everything well, if that went right? I'm not, I'm not su- suggesting anything went wrong. The campaign, as it unfolded, uh, mis- the NDP developed momentum. So did the Bloc Québécois. If the Bloc Québécois had stayed as flat as we thought they were going to, we would have elected MPs in Quebec. We had a very serious campaign with um, a number of very, uh, well, more, quite a few very good, strong, including Pierre Nantel, who's a former NDP member of Parliament who was running green. 
but you know, when you you never know how things are going to break, and a year a year is a long time in politics. Well, forty days is a very long time. Uh, the the blackface incident for Justin Trudeau really created a space that gave Jagmeet Singh a voice that we had not heard from him before. So his campaign took off. I mean, I'm not looking for people to blame. There's no question, though, on Vancouver Island that lies and smears that were totally dishonest did cost us our, uh, at least one seat, probably but three. That does so sound like you're looking to blame it, the NDP, though, on Vancouver Island. Well, Vancouver Island experienced such a dirty smear campaign that it was like something out of the United States. It was just off the charts. And I do think we need to have truth in advertising legislation so that voters aren't subjected to this. It also has the effect, of course, of reducing voter turnout, which is unfortunate. So, And I know that the liberals experience smears from the conservatives and the conservatives experience smears from the liberals. We never smeared anyone. We run very honest, um, high-road campaigns focusing on policy and issues, and we'll continue to do so. We certainly had a, a historic breakthrough tonight, last night in terms of seat count and the popular vote. For the first time, we topped more than a million votes across the country. So when, when other parties, I mean, there isn't a, the, the Liberals did less well than they did in 2015. The NDP did less well than they did in 2015. Um, the Conservatives had every um, opportunity to try to form government and fell far short. So uh, in, the, in looking at it as it, the, the morning after, there's a lot more to be pleased with in terms of our progress than lamenting. But would you do anything differently given the results? Yeah, I would have gotten out. We, we took the view in the party that the NDP attacks on Vancouver Island were so outrageous that voters wouldn't believe them and would be repelled by them. And I think that was a mistake. I think we should have put out a response uh, and, and gotten it out into people's mailboxes. We didn't. We, we, we trusted that people could uh, see that these were um, wildly inaccurate claims, uh, but they clearly were effective. So that lost us our strongest seats. I mean, I was so looking forward to Ralph Salcoy, who's a very strong Indigenous woman, to be the, the member of Parliament for Victoria. And uh, we had internal polling right up to the last week where that was going to be the case. Uh, and unfortunately, if, if I won't change, and I don't think anybody within the Green Party will change our commitment to um, staying positive and running mm-hmm. positive campaigns in the future. Unfortunately, some journalists mentioned to me last night, well, those ads worked. Uh, there isn't a lot of doubt on Vancouver Island about what just happened. So what is the road forward then for the Green Party? How do you see the Greens' role in this upcoming session of Parliament? Well, it's going to be very interesting. I spoke earlier today with uh, with the Prime Minister. Uh, it's not clear how alliances will be formed, whether there's how the how Trudeau will be able to hold the confidence of the House. As a Canadian, I have to say, uh, you know, there are a number of really important voices that have been lost from Parliament, uh, and I would say including in that across across party lines. Lisa Raitt, Ralph Goodale, um, Ruth Ellen Brezzo, there's, there's people not coming back that I thought would be coming back. Mm-hmm. I am so very happy and relieved that Jody Wilson-Raybould is re-elected because uh, the three Green MPs will clearly be working closely with our independent colleague in, in Jody Wilson-Raybould. We share a lot of the same concerns. Uh, we'll try to be as positive and constructive as we can be in what I'm afraid, particularly given the divisiveness and nastiness of the campaign, could be a rather divided and partisan house. We have to try to you know, heal over the rifts and find ways to work together. What did the Prime Minister have to say and what did you have to say to him? Well, you know, it's a private conversation, but just reaffirming that, that if, you know, I obviously stressed that I wanted to see more climate action. Uh, we, we're in early days of trying to figure out uh, what the Parliament will look like in, it, in its new formation. Clearly, I mean, the, the tra- tragedy here is in terms of fair voting that, you know, you can, you can have over a million votes. And, and again, every, every elected Green um, took over 300,000 Canadians voting to, to elect one MP. That's clearly not the case with the other parties. Uh, and it's just one of the vagaries of first past the post that it rewards the Bloc Québécois and punishes a truly national party like the Greens. I, I will get back. I will always, as will Paul Manley, as will Jenica Atwin. We'll keep fighting for climate action. We'll keep fighting for fair voting. And maybe we can find some consensus around issues like pharmacare so we can move together on mm-hmm. some things in a, more, in a minority parliament. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time on this. Thank you.
Appreciate that. That is Elizabeth May, the federal Green Party leader. It's not every day you read a book like the one written by our next author. Journalist, award-winning journalist, Anna Mailer Paperni had it all, or so it seemed from the outside. Isn't that always the case, though? Didn't stop her from trying to kill herself more than once. That began a journey through the psychiatric care system in this country that she writes about with just searing honesty and, yes, some humor as well with the language that she uses. Her book is called Hello, I Want to Die, Please Fix Me, Depression in the First Person. And Anna joins us now to talk about it. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. That's quite the title. (laughs) Yeah, I wanted to really grab people, um, but I also wanted to be honest. I mean, that's what's going through my head a lot of the time you know, just as I go through my day to day. There's a lot of very painful things that you talk about in this book. So what was it like deciding to write this? It was hard. I'm not, um, I'm, a, I'm a little bit shy, which come, might come as a surprise. Um, and so, but I found myself, um, you know, writing these little bits of and snatches of my own experience to myself anyway. I found myself with all these questions that I wanted to have answered and I found myself wanting to fill this gap in the discourse um, between, you know, redemptive kind of happy narratives and um, anti, anti-psychiatry narratives, academic screeds. We don't really have much space, or there is space, but there isn't much to fill it um, with uh, pieces that really bluntly jump in and say, this is what it's like to deal with this. This is where we're falling short. Mm -hmm. And these are the things we can do to address that. What is the this that we're talking about here? Uh, It's severe depression and suicide, um, which is the highest burden of disease of any in the world. And yet it it doesn't get nearly the funding. In Canada, you know, many of the treatments that you would need to address it aren't covered by our so-called universal healthcare system. So we act as though it's not real. We act as though it's just sort of a pretend illness, Mm -hmm. when in reality, it's debilitating for so many people, and it gets worse without adequate treatment. Can we talk about some of the language that's used in the book, too? Uh, Some of it, I mean, honestly, you just don't hear words like this used anymore when it comes to talking about mental illness. For instance, there was one quote in there about being a crazy person housed in a modern-day loony bin. Yeah. Um, I <laughs> Why wanted, use language like that? Part of it is just to get, some, get, get people's attention. Right. And to get across how, how strange it feels to be in that situation. You know, you never mm-hmm. expect to find yourself there. Um, it's sort of to uh, explode our own assumptions a little bit um, around what it's like, around what it's like, you know, to, to picture yourself there. Um, but I felt I needed to use this kind of language to get people out of their comfort zones and make them pay attention. When did you first know that you had some issues that needed to be dealt with? I mean, it wasn't until after my first suicide attempt that somebody told me I had depression. And when he first told me, I didn't believe it. Really? Because in my mind, I wanted to kill myself because I was a horrible person and I deserved to die. And... You know, I couldn't imagine that what what I was going through was an illness that was treatable. So that was revelatory. When I finally started to believe my doctor when he told me this, um, it was a revel- it was a revelation, and that would have been when I was about twenty four years old. So you'd made it all the way to twenty four without kind of voicing some of the issues that you had been dealing with. Yeah. What was that like for your family and your friends when you did say, hey, this this is what I'm dealing with right now? It was really difficult for them, I think, because I got really good at hiding what I was going through. And so they thought things were mostly okay. And then out of the blue, you know, from their perspective, um, I make this really serious suicide attempt. And I'm telling them this is how I feel. And they were like, well, how is it that we didn't know this? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what are you not telling us? What are we not picking up on? And it's... Um, did that help you having them as a part of that? It did in the long run. It was painful in the short run yeah. because these are people I love and I don't want to hurt the people I love. But in the long run, I think I've gotten, we've gotten better at being open with each other 
about what's going on and where I am in terms of my illness. And I think our relationship is the better for it. What was it like, though, trying to get help? And once you know, okay, this is what I'm dealing with, now somebody fix me. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I was lucky in that I had a psychiatrist who was seeing me on an ongoing basis. Mm -hmm. And I had insurance through my employer. A lot of people, a lot of Canadians do not have that. But even with this luck, um, I mean, I'm still trying to find um, you know, a mix of medications that works. And it's been almost a decade. A decade. That's scary. And I know, I know other people with mental illness who, who have the same issue that even if you do find something, how long is it going to work for? And then you know, that transition to another medication is also devastating. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then so you just can end up on a cycle, like trying different things. It's all trial and error. Yeah. And you can go on like that for for years. And so when you kind of delved into this, like the system, the issues that you were facing, did you come to any conclusions? Was there something that you thought, we need to fix X, Y, Z? There were two main issues I found. One was the tools that we have are grossly inadequate. They're not good enough. They're not effective enough. They need to be better. The other thing is, we're not good at getting people, even the inadequate tools that we have, we're not good at connecting people with them. Hmm. And they're better than nothing. They're not great, but they're better than nothing. And we, are, we fall down when it comes to getting people that kind of help, even when we know that help is not everything it could be. So those two things, from my perspective, uh, broadly speaking, are most in need of tackling. But why do you think that is? Because, you know, we're so good at doing other things under, as you put it, universal health care. But when it comes to dealing with mental health issues, we, we, it's almost like we want to push that into a corner and, and not deal with it. And yet it is making someone better. Yes. Um, and I think, you know, as much as we talk about talking, we still treat this as its own special thing that isn't, doesn't really warrant the same kind mm. of attention you put it in a other, special category. Other illnesses, right. yeah. And are you saying then that hey, it's the same as a broken leg or diabetes or something like that? Yeah, except except it can be more debilitating and it's harder to treat. Have you talked to other people going through similar situations? I have, both for the book and since the book came out, I've been approached by people who say like, "Yeah, this is me," and that's tough. That's really painful because. You know, knowing knowing what it's like to go through that is awful to sort of talk to somebody who's there experiencing that pain. But um, I think it's so valuable to be able to explore those perspectives. Right. Does it make you feel any better knowing? I mean, clearly your book was is needed for a lot of people out there. I hope so. I really, really hope so. I mean, it's hard when somebody says, you know, your book really spoke to me because I'm going through that. I feel bad because I don't want anyone to go through this. But I'm glad that if they are, they feel less alone. Right. You talk about going through the psychiatric care system. Did that, at the end result then, did you find what you needed to get help? I'm getting the professional expertise that I think I need. But even the best expertise out there does not have the answers that I need. Because our, our our methods of treatment are so primitive they haven't really evolved since like the 1980s or 1950s even. And we don't really know why they work. We don't really know how they work. We don't know why they mm. work for some people, but not others. Are you talking about the drugs, the medication? Yes. And yet you would think that we know that depression is such a huge problem. There's money to be made in this industry. You would think so. Yeah. And yet because there's so much uncertainty surrounding it um, and so much uncertainty surrounding whether or not you're going to get approved whether people will respond. A lot of drug companies have actually been getting out of the business. Really? So what is your message then, Anna? I know with the book and in talking to people about this, what is it that you want people to take away from hearing you? I mean, I think for anybody who's going through this, I want them to know that they're, you know, their lives are valuable and they're not alone and that this is an extrinsic illness that's, that is treatable even when it feels like it's insurmountable. Um, but for anybody who's in a position to advocate, 
I think, you know, bang down the door of your local government and uh, and insist that this is something that we need to address. Do you feel you're in a position to advocate now? It's hard. I consider myself a journalist. Um, but, I mean, I think because I'm taking the unusual step of being so open personally, um, I think it puts me in a little bit of a different position than I usually am as a reporter. I was going to say, is that hard for you? Because as a reporter, you're usually writing about other things and other people, and now you have to write about yourself. It's very weird. <laughs> it's very uncomfortable. How, did you enjoy it, though? So was it cathartic for you? It was cathartic. It was interestingly, the editing process was a challenge because really? I had to, like, ask. I mean, edit, a good editor will ask you tough questions about what you're writing. Mm-hmm. When the questions are about these really painful things you're going through, it can be hard oh. to ask those questions. Yeah. But it was important. It was an important process. Well, Anna, listen, thank you so much for joining us here today. We really appreciate that. Thank you so much for having me. The book is called Hello, I Want to Die, Please Fix Me. The author is Anna mailer Paperni. Now she's also appearing here at the Vancouver Writers' Fest tonight, as a matter of fact. For more information, check out writersfest.bc.ca. And we also want to make sure that we say that anyone who you heard Anna just now, if any of this kind of resonated with you or you feel distressed about the health issues or the things that we talked about in this segment, we want to make sure that you get the help that you need. So remember, there is the crisis line. That is 604-872-3311 or visit your local hospital emergency room. But once again, that crisis line number, 604-872-3311.